Chapter Nine, Parts One and Two of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, by Edward Gibbon, Volume One, Chapter Nine: State of Germany until the Barbarians. Part One. The state of Germany till the invasion of the barbarians in the time of the emperor Decius. The government and religion of Persia have deserved some notice from their connection with the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. We shall occasionally mention the Scythian or Sarmatian tribes, which, with their arms and horses, their flocks and herds, their wives and families, wandered over the immense plains which spread themselves from the Caspian Sea to the Vistula, from the confines of Persia to those of Germany. But the warlike Germans, who first resisted, then invaded, and at length overturned the western monarchy of Rome, will occupy a much more important place in this history, and possess a stronger, and if we may use the expression, a more domestic claim to our attention and regard. The most civilized nations of modern Europe issued from the woods of Germany, and in the rude institutions of those barbarians we may still distinguish the original principles of our present laws and manners. In their primitive state of simplicity and independence, the Germans were surveyed by the discerning eye, and delineated by the masterly pencil of Tacitus, the first of historians who applied the science of philosophy to the study of facts. The expressive conciseness of his descriptions has served to exercise the diligence of innumerable antiquarians, and to excite the genius and penetration of the philosophic historians of our own times. The subject, however various and important, has already been so frequently, so ably, and so successfully discussed, that it is now grown familiar to the reader, and difficult to the writer. We shall therefore content ourselves with observing, and indeed with repeating, some of the most important circumstances of climate, of manners, and of institutions, which rendered the wild barbarians of Germany such formidable enemies to the Roman power. Ancient Germany, excluding from its independent limits the province westward of the Rhine, which had submitted to the Roman yoke, extended itself over a third part of Europe. Almost the whole of modern Germany, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Finland, Livonia, Prussia, and the greater part of Poland were peopled by the various tribes of one great nation, whose complexion, manners, and language denoted a common origin, and preserved a striking resemblance. On the west, ancient Germany was divided by the Rhine from the Gallic, and on the south by the Danube, from the Illyrian provinces of the empire. A ridge of hills rising from the Danube and called the Carpathian Mountains covered Germany on the side of Dacia or Hungary. The eastern frontier was faintly marked by the mutual fears of the Germans and the Sarmatians, and was often confounded by the mixture of warring and confederating tribes of the two nations. In the remote darkness of the north, the ancients imperfectly descried a frozen ocean that lay beyond the Baltic Sea, and beyond the peninsula or islands of Scandinavia. Some ingenious writers have suspected that Europe was much colder formerly than it is at present, and the most ancient descriptions of the climate of Germany tend exceedingly to confirm their theory. The general complaints of intense frost and eternal winter are perhaps little to be regarded, since we have no method of reducing to the accurate standard of the thermometer the feelings or the expressions of an orator born in the happier regions of greece or asia 
but I shall select two remarkable circumstances of a less equivocal nature. 1. The great rivers which covered the Roman provinces, the Rhine and the Danube, were frequently frozen over, and capable of supporting the most enormous weights. The barbarians, who often chose that severe season for their inroads, transported, without apprehension or danger, their numerous armies, their cavalry, and their heavy wagons, over a vast and solid bridge of ice. Modern ages have not presented an instance of a like phenomenon. 2. The reindeer, that useful animal, from whom the savage of the north derives the best comforts of his dreary life, is of a constitution that supports, and even requires, the most intense cold. He is found on the rock of Spitzberg, within ten degrees of the pole. He seems to delight in the snows of Lapland and Siberia, but at present he cannot subsist, much less multiply, in any country to the south of the Baltic. In the time of Caesar, the reindeer, as well as the elk and the wild bull, was a native of the Hercynian forest, which then overshadowed a great part of Germany and Poland. The modern improvements sufficiently explain the causes of the diminution of the cold. These immense woods have been gradually cleared, which intercepted from the earth the rays of the sun. The morasses have been drained, and in proportion as the soil has been cultivated, the air has become more temperate. Canada at this day is an exact picture of ancient Germany. Although situated in the same parallel with the finest provinces of France and England, that country experiences the most rigorous cold. The reindeer are very numerous, the ground is covered with deep and lasting snow, and the great river of St. Lawrence is regularly frozen, in a season when the waters of the Seine and the Thames are usually free from ice. It is difficult to ascertain, and easy to exaggerate, the influence of the climate of ancient Germany over the minds and bodies of the natives. Many writers have supposed, and most have allowed, though as it should seem without any adequate proof, that the rigorous cold of the north was favorable to long life and generative vigor, that the women were more fruitful and the human species more prolific than in warmer or more temperate climates. We may assert with greater confidence that the keen air of Germany formed the large and masculine limbs of the natives, who were in general of a more lofty stature than the people of the south, gave them a kind of strength better adapted to violent exertions than to patient labor, and inspired them with constitutional bravery, which is the result of nerves and spirits. The severity of a winter campaign that chilled the courage of the Roman troops was scarcely felt by these hardy children of the north, who, in their turn, were unable to resist the summer heats, and dissolved away in languor and sickness under the beams of an Italian sun. CHAPTER Nine, PART Two. There is not anywhere upon the globe a large tract of country which we have discovered destitute of inhabitants, or whose first population can be fixed with any degree of historical certainty. And yet, as the most philosophic minds can seldom refrain from investigating the infancy of great nations, our curiosity consumes itself in toilsome and disappointed efforts. When Tacitus considered the purity of the German blood and the forbidding aspect of the country, he was disposed to pronounce those barbarians indigent or natives of the soil. We may allow with safety, and perhaps with truth, that ancient Germany was not originally peopled by any foreign colonies already formed into a political society, but that the name and nation received their existence from the gradual union of some wandering savages of the Hercynian woods. 
To assert those savages to have been the spontaneous production of the earth which they inhabited would be a rash inference, condemned by religion, and unwarranted by reason. Such rational doubt is but ill-suited with the genius of popular vanity. Among the nations who have adopted the mosaic history of the world, the Ark of Noah has been of the same use, as was formerly to the Greeks and Romans, the siege of Troy. On a narrow basis of acknowledged truth, an immense but rude superstructure of fable has been erected, and the wild Irishman, as well as the wild Tartar, could point out the individual son of Japhet, from whose loins his ancestors were lineally descended. The last century abounded with antiquarians of profound learning and easy faith, who, by the dim light of legends and traditions, of conjectures and etymologies, conducted the great-grandchildren of Noah from the Tower of Babel to the extremities of the globe. Of these judicious critics, one of the most entertaining was Oas Rudbeck, professor in the University of Upsal. Whatever is celebrated either in history or fable, this zealous patriot ascribes to his country. From Sweden, which forms so considerable a part of ancient Germany, the Greeks themselves derived their alphabetical characters, their astronomy, and their religion. Of that delightful region, for such it appeared to the eyes of a native, the Atlantis of Plato, the country of the Hyperboreans, the Garden of the Hesperides, the Fortunate Islands, and even the Elysian fields, were all but faint and imperfect transcripts. A clime so profusely favored by nature could not long remain desert after the flood. The learned Rudbeck allows the family of Noah a few years to multiply from eight to about twenty thousand persons. He then disperses them into small colonies to replenish the earth, and to propagate the human species. The German or Swedish detachment, which marched, if I am not mistaken, under the command of Askenaz, the son of Gomer, the son of Japhet, distinguished itself by a more than common diligence in the prosecution of this great work. The northern hive cast its swarms over the greatest part of Europe, Africa, and Asia, and, to use the author's metaphor, the blood circulated from the extremities to the heart. But all this well-labored system of German antiquities is annihilated by a single fact, too well attested to admit of any doubt, and of too decisive a nature to leave room for any reply. The Germans, in the age of Tacitus, were unacquainted with the use of letters, and the use of letters is the principal circumstance that distinguishes a civilized people from a herd of savages incapable of knowledge or reflection. Without that artificial help, the human memory soon dissipates or corrupts the ideas entrusted to her charge, and the nobler faculties of the mind, no longer supplied with models or with materials, gradually forget their powers, the judgment becomes feeble and lethargic, the imagination languid or irregular. Fully to apprehend this important truth, let us attempt, in an improved society, to calculate the immense distance between the man of learning and the illiterate peasant. The former, by reading and reflection, multiplies his own experience, and lives in distant ages and remote countries, whilst the latter, rooted to a single spot and confined to a few years of existence, surpasses but very little his fellow laborer, the ox, in the exercise of his mental faculties. The same, and even a greater difference, will be found between nations than between individuals, and we may safely pronounce that without some species of writing, no people has ever preserved the faithful annals of their history, ever made any considerable progress in the abstract sciences, or ever possessed in any tolerable degree of perfection 
the useful and agreeable arts of life. Of these arts, the ancient Germans were wretchedly destitute. They passed their lives in a state of ignorance and poverty, which it has pleased some declaimers to dignify with the appellation of virtuous simplicity. Modern Germany is said to contain about 2,300 walled towns. In a much wider extent of country, the geographer Ptolemy could discover no more than ninety places which he decorates with the name of cities, though, according to our ideas, they would but ill-deserve that splendid title. We can only suppose them to have been rude fortifications, constructed in the centre of the woods, and designed to secure the women, children, and cattle, whilst the warriors of the tribe marched out to repel a sudden invasion. But Tacitus asserts, as a well-known fact, that the Germans in his time had no cities, and that they affected to despise the works of Roman industry, as places of confinement rather than of security. Their edifices were not even contiguous, or formed into regular villas. Each barbarian fixed his independent dwelling on the spot to which a plain, a wood, or a stream of fresh water had induced him to give the preference. Neither stone, nor brick, nor tiles were employed in these slight habitations. They were, indeed, no more than low huts of a circular figure, built of rough timber, thatched with straw, and pierced at the top to leave a free passage for the smoke. In the most inclement weather the hardy German was satisfied with a scanty garment made of the skin of some animal. The nations who dwelt towards the north clothed themselves in furs, and the women manufactured for their own use a coarse kind of linen. The game of various sorts, with which the forests of Germany were plentifully stocked, supplied its inhabitants with food and exercise. Their monstrous herds of cattle, less remarkable indeed for their beauty than for their utility, formed the principal object of their wealth. A small quantity of corn was the only produce exacted from the earth. The use of orchards or artificial meadows was unknown to the Germans, nor can we expect any improvements in agriculture from a people whose prosperity every year experienced a general change by a new division of the arable lands, and who, in that strange operation, avoided disputes by suffering a great part of their territory to lie waste and without tillage. Gold, silver, and iron were extremely scarce in Germany. Its barbarous inhabitants wanted both skill and patience to investigate those rich veins of silver which have so liberally rewarded the attention of the princes of Brunswick and Saxony. Sweden, which now supplies Europe with iron, was equally ignorant of its own riches, and the appearance of the arms of the Germans furnished a sufficient proof how little iron they were able to bestow on what they must have deemed the noblest use of that metal. The various transactions of peace and war had introduced some Roman coins, chiefly silver, among the borderers of the Rhine and Danube, but the more distant tribes were absolutely unacquainted with the use of money, carried on their confined traffic by the exchange of commodities, and prized their rude earthen vessels as of equal value with the silver vases, the presence of Rome to their princes and ambassadors. To a mind capable of reflection, such leading facts convey more instruction than a tedious detail of subordinate circumstances. The value of money has been settled by general consent to express our wants and our property, as letters were invented to express our ideas, and both these institutions, by giving a more active energy to the powers and passions of human nature, have contributed to multiply the objects they were designed to represent. The use of gold and silver is in a great measure factitious, 
but it would be impossible to enumerate the important and various services which agriculture and all the arts have received from iron when tempered and fashioned by the operation of fire and the dexterous hand of man money in a word is the most universal incitement iron the most powerful instrument of human industry and it is very difficult to conceive by what means a people neither actuated by the one nor seconded by the other could emerge from the grossest barbarism if we contemplate a savage nation in any part of the globe a supine indolence and a carelessness of futurity will be found to constitute their general character in a civilized state every faculty of man is expanded and exercised and the great chain of mutual dependence connects and embraces the several members of society the most numerous portion of it is employed in constant and useful labor the select few placed by fortune above that necessity can however fill up their time by the pursuits of interest or glory by the improvement of their estate or of their understanding by the duties the pleasures and even the follies of social life the germans were not possessed of these varied resources the care of the house and family the management of the land and cattle were delegated to the old and the infirm to women and slaves the lazy warrior destitute of every art that might employ his leisure hours consumed his days and nights in the animal gratifications of sleep and food and yet by a wonderful diversity of nature according to the remark of a writer who had pierced into its darkest recesses the same barbarians are by turns the most indolent and the most restless of mankind they delight in sloth they detest tranquillity the languid soul oppressed with its own weight anxiously required some new and powerful sensation and war and danger were the only amusements adequate to its fierce temper the sound that summoned the german to arms was grateful to his ear it roused him from his uncomfortable lethargy gave him an active pursuit and by strong exercise of the body and violent emotions of the mind restored him to a more lively sense of his existence in the dull intervals of peace these barbarians were immoderately addicted to deep gaming and excessive drinking both of which by different means the one by inflaming their passions the other by extinguishing their reason alike relieved them from the pain of thinking they gloried in passing whole days and nights at table and the blood of friends and relations often stained their numerous and drunken assemblies their debts of honor for in that light they have transmitted to us those of play they discharged with the most romantic fidelity the desperate gamester who had staked his person and liberty on a last throw of the dice patiently submitted to the decision of fortune and suffered himself to be bound chastised and sold into remote slavery by his weaker but more lucky antagonist strong beer a liquor extracted with very little art from wheat or barley and corrupted as it is strongly expressed by tacitus into a certain semblance of wine was sufficient for the gross purposes of german debauchery but those who had tasted the rich wines of italy and afterwards of gaul sighed for that more delicious species of intoxication they attempted not however as has since been executed with so much success to naturalize the vine on the banks of the rhine and danube nor did they endeavor to procure by industry the materials of an advantageous commerce to solicit by labor what might be ravished by arms was esteemed unworthy of the german spirit the intemperate thirst of strong liquors often urged the barbarians 
to invade the provinces on which art or nature had bestowed those more envied presents. The Tuscan who betrayed his country to the Celtic nations attracted them into Italy by the prospect of the rich fruits and delicious wines, the productions of a happier climate. And in the same manner, the German auxiliaries, invited into France during the civil wars of the sixteenth century, were allured by the promise of plenteous quarters in the provinces of Champagne and Burgundy. Drunkenness, the most illiberal, but not the most dangerous of our vices, was sometimes capable, in a less civilized state of mankind, of occasioning a battle, a war, or a revolution. The climate of ancient Germany has been modified, and the soil fertilized, by the labor of ten centuries from the time of Charlemagne. The same extent of ground which at present maintains, in ease and plenty, a million of husbandmen and artificers, was unable to supply a hundred thousand lazy warriors with the simple necessities of life. The Germans abandoned their immense forests to the exercise of hunting, employed in pasturage the most considerable part of their lands, bestowed on the small remainder a rude and careless cultivation, and then accused the scantiness and sterility of a country that refused to maintain the multitude of its inhabitants. When the return of famine severely admonished them of the importance of the arts, the national distress was sometimes alleviated by the emigration of a third, perhaps, or a fourth part of their youth. The possession and the enjoyment of property are the pledges which bind a civilized people to an improved country. But the Germans, who carried with them what they most valued, their arms, their cattle, and their women, cheerfully abandoned the vast silence of their woods for the unbounded hopes of plunder and conquest. The innumerable swarms that issued, or seemed to issue, from the great storehouse of nations were multiplied by the fears of the vanquished and by the credulity of the succeeding ages and from facts thus exaggerated an opinion was gradually established and has been supported by writers of distinguished reputation that in the age of caesar and tacitus the inhabitants of the north were far more numerous than they are in our days a more serious inquiry into the causes of population seems to have convinced modern philosophers of the falsehood and indeed the impossibility of the supposition to the names of mariana and of machiavel we can oppose the equal names of robertson and hume a warlike nation like the germans without either cities letters arts or money found some compensation for this savage state in the enjoyment of liberty their poverty secured their freedom since our desires and our possessions are the strongest fetters of despotism. Among the Suyones, says Tacitus, riches are held in honor. They are therefore subject to an absolute monarch, who, instead of entrusting his people with the free use of arms, as is practiced in the rest of Germany, commits them to the safe custody, not of a citizen, or even of a freedman, but of a slave. The neighbors of the Suyones, the Cytones, are sunk even below servitude. They obey a woman." In the mention of these exceptions, the great historian sufficiently acknowledges the general theory of government. We are only at a loss to conceive by what means riches and despotism could penetrate into a remote corner of the north, and extinguish the generous flame that blazed with such fierceness on the frontier of the Roman provinces, or how the ancestors of those Danes and Norwegians, so distinguished in latter ages by their unconquered spirit, could thus tamely resign the great character of German liberty. Some tribes, however, on the coast of the Baltic, acknowledged the authority of kings, 
though without relinquishing the rights of men, but in the far greater part of Germany the form of government was a democracy, tempered, indeed, and controlled, not so much by general and positive laws, as by the occasional ascendant of birth or valor, of eloquence or superstition. Civil governments in their first institution are voluntary associations for mutual defense. To obtain the desired end, it is absolutely necessary that each individual should conceive himself obliged to submit his private opinions and actions to the judgment of the greater number of his associates. The German tribes were contented with this rude but liberal outline of political society. As soon as a youth, born of free parents, had attained the age of manhood, he was introduced into the general council of his countrymen, solemnly invested with a shield and spear, and adopted as an equal and worthy member of the military commonwealth. The assembly of the warriors of the tribe was convened at stated seasons or on sudden emergencies. The trial of public offenses, the election of magistrates, and the great business of peace and war were determined by its independent voice. Sometimes, indeed, these important questions were previously considered and prepared in a more select council of the principal chieftains. The magistrates might deliberate and persuade, the people could only resolve and execute, and the resolutions of the Germans were for the most part hasty and violent. Barbarians accustomed to place their freedom in gratifying the present passion, and their courage in overlooking all future consequences, turned away with indignant contempt from the remonstrances of justice and policy, and it was the practice to signify by a hollow murmur their dislike of such timid counsels. But whenever a more popular orator proposed to vindicate the meanest citizen from either foreign or domestic injury, whenever he called upon his fellow countrymen to assert the national honor, or to pursue some enterprise full of danger and glory, a loud clashing of shields and spears expressed the eager applause of the assembly for the Germans always met in arms, and it was constantly to be dreaded, lest an irregular multitude, inflamed with faction and strong liquors, should use those arms to enforce, as well as to declare their furious resolves. We may recollect how often the diets of Poland have been polluted with blood, and the more numerous party has been compelled to yield to the more violent and seditious. A general of the tribe was elected on occasions of danger, and if the danger was pressing and extensive, several tribes concurred in the choice of the same general. The bravest warrior was named to lead his countrymen into the field, by his example rather than by his commands. But this power, however limited, was still invidious. It expired with the war, and in time of peace the German tribes acknowledged not any supreme chief. Princes were, however, appointed in the general assembly to administer justice, or rather to compose differences in their respective districts. In the choice of these magistrates, as much regard was shown to birth as to merit. To each was assigned by the public a guard and a council of a hundred persons, and the first of the princes appears to have enjoyed a preeminence of rank and honor which sometimes tempted the Romans to compliment him with the regal title. The comparative view of the powers of the magistrates in two remarkable instances is alone sufficient to represent the whole system of German manners. The disposal of the landed property within their district was absolutely vested in their hands, and they distributed it every year according to a new division. At the same time they were not authorized to punish with death, to imprison, 
or even to strike a private citizen. A people thus jealous of their persons, and careless of their possessions, must have been totally destitute of industry and the arts, but animated with a high sense of honor and independence. End of chapter 9, parts 1 and 2